This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Dr. Jennifer Nolan, a wife, mother, and the president and co-founder of a new Catholic STEM university called Catholic Polytechnic University. She is a former neuroscientist and homeschool mom and earned her PhD in psychology from UC Irvine's Department of Cognitive Science. She is also the executive director of the Right to Life League in Southern California. In this episode, Deacon Charlie talks with Jennifer about her own faith journey, how she turned personal trauma and intense grief into a life-giving and evangelistic gift of building Catholic Polytechnic University, whose mission is to promote the intersection of faith and science as seen through the lens of faithful Catholic teachings. Together, we're building Catholic Polytechnic University into the university that we want for our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. We want this for our nation, for our Catholic Church. We want something that does very high-level science and tech research and teaching. We want the freedom to be devoutly Catholic and to teach Catholic values and to convert others if they feel called by the Lord to be converted. This is Living the Call. Dr. Jennifer Nolan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Deacon Charlie. I was going to say in your old haunt, because I know you were around here at some point <laughs> in your, maybe your undergraduate or your, your, your teaching years, mm-hmm. but um, our studio, for those who don't know, is very close to Loyola Marymount University. Yes. My kids grew up basically on that campus as a playground. I bet. So close. <laughs> and it's it's pretty. I mean, it's like a sort of big backyard in mm-hmm. a way. You know, there's a lot to, to do. Did You didn't live on campus. I I did not, no. I was a commuter student and only for my junior and senior year and then uh, went off to UCLA to do a year at the Neuropsychiatric Institute there of research and then went to uh, UC Irvine to get my graduate degree, my PhD. And then I came back to LMU to be a professor. So you're like a legitimate California Girl, Southern California lady. <laughs> yes, definitely. My uh, my my grandparents went to Glendale High School in Cali- Southern California with uh, Marion Morrison, mm. aka John Wayne. Uh, oh, back that's in the right. Day. Yeah. yeah. So we, Who, um, we date back. He was in Glendale. That's mm-hmm. interesting. He must have moved around because I remember running into. Isn't his hometown like down in? La Jolla or something, like a beachy sort of town somewhere. Maybe I, not San Diego, but... I think it was Balboa Island. Balboa, there you go. Yeah. That's the one. Mm-hmm. I was down there and I was like, oh, wow, he's spent some time here. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. But uh, but so, yes, my mom's side of the family, uh, Southern California. My dad's side is Irish Catholic, dating back, gosh, generations to Hartford, um, 100% Irish. So, so then yeah. you're the first generation here or your parents were here, born here as well? Um, like in... California. My mom was born in California. My dad was born in, in I believe, Hartford. Um, so, so yes, it to some degree, first generation in, it, on his side, at least. So yeah. one question that I have for you that relates to your California nativity, which I get all the time because I'm an Angelino, just mm-hmm. like you, and I travel and I speak and I run in Catholic circles and all of that. I get all, all the time, I have people go like, how do you live in Los Angeles? <laughs> How do you do? What's your kind of go-to answer? Because I've got one. I've got a go-to answer, but I want to hear yours. Okay. So basically, people are shocked to learn that there is a very massive network of very devout Catholics here in Los Angeles, and we are really tight, and we we support each other. We help each other's businesses. We school our children together. 
um, like I homeschooled my kids for 10 years in a devout Catholic um, homeschool network. And then uh, my kids go to a very wonderful classical curriculum school. So, you know, um, that's how we live in Southern California. It's we've got Catholics all around us. And I've heard from some people who, you know, the Texodus, mm-hmm. the 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 fle- Idaho Exodus, yeah, yeah. there's the, all every state. Exactly the the fleeing of California. I've heard to some degree that not not so much Texas, but other people who have gone to other states during COVID have really missed that um, that network that sure. s- of tremendous support because it's huge here. It's just massive, and that's really how we were able to get this university off the ground was. Um, was through this network, and because we're also so close to uh, JPL, mm-hmm. so we have NASA scientists and engineers on the um, the Jet Propulsion the Lab team. for those who are less initiated, from yeah, other parts of the country, exactly. So, for those who don't know you, mm-hmm. um, you're kind of what in the entertainment industry we would call a multi hyphenate. Have you ever heard that expression? No. Multi hyphenate <laughs> is uh, a person who is. A producer, director, writer, showrunner, <laughs> like they do a variety of different things. Jack of all trades, many hats. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know, jack of all trades, but with a, a tremendous amount of domain expertise in a variety of different areas. So you've got a PhD in psychology. Um, you, you've, you know, taught in a number of different places. You co-founded mm-hmm. a stroke and brain injury rehab center. And now to the, bringing you to the school that you're dealing with, you are mm-hmm. the president and co-founder of a new Catholic university that's focused on STEM. So you also are very busy and moving around and doing <laughs> different things. Yeah. And, um, you know, the California thing to me is particularly interesting um, insofar as I agree with you that there's these sort of networks and they can be particularly meaningful when you're trying to get something like what you're getting off the ground, off the ground. But um, for me, my go-to answer is also that if we're, we, somebody needs to be the leaven, in other words, if everybody just bails mm-hmm. and goes somewhere else, you move to right. Idaho. It's like, exactly. What are, we, you know, what are we doing? Yeah, and I've I've often been asked um, about Catholic Polytechnic University. Really, what's? Oh, why don't you leave? Why don't you go somewhere else? Well, that's yes. People do leave and go somewhere else and start it somewhere else. However, we have eight million Catholics in Southern California, and we absolutely need a science and tech university that is. So it's science and tech focused, but also deeply, devoutly Catholic, mm-hmm. that we have nothing of that that sort here. Matter of fact, throughout the, the nation, it just doesn't exist. So really, we're filling a huge void for most people. And that's kind of how this all started. It was um, back, I'd say, around 2015. Um, my husband and I would go walking every night, mm-hmm. and, and often the the topic of conversation was, well, what are we going to do with our kids who want to be scientists and engineers for college? So, you know, where are they going to go? Are they going to go to a secular college that is science and tech based, but they could be talked out of their faith in, you know, a semester by a smooth talking atheistic professor, or they could go to a Catholic liberal arts college and, and, but maybe not have the intense the rigor. science and faith, you know, or or just the intense science and tech education. Um, and so really there was no good answer. There's no like, oh, this is perfect. Um, so over time, I 
the, the vision of Catholic Polytechnic University really started to form in my head. And it was very, um, it, it was a very clear vision of kind of, it, I say it's kind of like a Catholic Caltech or a Catholic MIT, something with very high level research and teaching, um, an intense relationship with companies, businesses, so that we can serve them, they can serve us, we, we can um, cater some of our uh, curriculum to their needs, and also form um, corporate spon- sponsorships, corporate partnerships. And then um, as, as, this, as this image started to kind of form in my head, um, I got asked to teach at a local community college. And I was teaching there, and I found out I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And we were so excited. We were just thrilled. The kids were thrilled. We were thrilled. Um, and one day I was going to an OB appointment early on, and I got stuck in horrible traffic. Mm. It was it was just like a standstill, and I couldn't get there on time. And I showed up an hour late to this doctor's appointment. And the woman at the door said, you know, sorry, we can't take you right now. We can take you in an hour. Why don't you come um, just just for the heck of it, just because you're on the older side, come meet with the genetic specialist. And I'm like, okay, sure, fine. It's not like I'm going to abort my kid, but um, at least I'll find out if it's a, a boy or a girl. So I went through this and then went through my appointment, came home. About four or five days later, I get the call. Mm. And the call is, Jennifer, are you sitting down? That's how it started? Yeah. Wow. And she said to me, um, have you ever heard of trisomy 18? And I said, yes, I have. I had a friend who had a trisomy 18 baby, and it was awful. Um, what is trisomy 18? So trisomy 18. So um when the when the ovum splits and you get you know this mitosis where they're breaking the DNA is replicating itself Cellular and breaking it off and all yeah that. Uh-huh. so you can get on one side a third chromosome so trisomy so third chromosome and the other side only one chromosome so that's what happens when when we have like Down syndrome, mm. that's a trisomy 21, I think. Um, so this is trisomy 18. It's it's in a sense similar to Down syndrome. However, it is considered incompatible with life. Mm. Most babies die in the womb. Some die at birth. But I, I'm guessing probably 95% die in the first year. Um, and very, very few live mm. beyond that. Mm. So obviously, I just I curled up into a fetal position and just cried my head off. Um, and mm. we did everything in our power to um, to you know preserve her. We named her Grace. Um, I would go into my OB appointments, and every single OB appointment they offered me abortion. Every single one. 
And I just said, no, I'm not going to do this to her. Why would I give her a violent death in the womb when she could have a peaceful death upon birth? Because further ultrasounds revealed that she did have major deformities. And she, she just truly was incompatible with life and just living off of my body. Um, Did you find those opportunities um, on any level evangelical for the people who were yes. telling you to do this? Yes, because finally one person said to me, um, why don't you put it in the chart? So I walked up to my next OB appointment. I said, okay, I want this in big capital letters in my chart. This woman is pro-life. Mm. Do not ask her to abort her child. And it was amazing because I walked into the the um, the room and when the doctor walked in, there was a visible relief on his face. There was a sigh of relief because he had a Catholic background mm. um, and he could then just stop asking me because he was part of a big medical organization and I'm sure they're required to ask me because it costs them to do the OB appointments. You know, it would probably be a lot cheaper for them to say, hey, just go get an abortion. For sure. It was an economic incentive. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So so we went ahead and and I carried grace for as long as I could. And it was a great cost to me and mm. to my family because her um, kidneys were not functioning. So there was so much extra fluid. Um, I remember sitting on my knees one night, so exhausted, and my belly so swollen, and I fell asleep, um, kneeling on the floor with my arms and my head on the couch. And I was just so exhausted carrying this child. But there was never a question, mm. ever a question that we would ever abort her. And she did. She had a peaceful death upon birth. It mm. was enormously peaceful. We buried her. Um, we had—the church was packed mm. when we had her memorial service. It was packed. We had hundreds of people attend. So, yes, I know it is a point of evangelization. And, um, and people kept coming up to me and saying, you know, you're doing the right thing, and thank you for doing the right thing. And— um, and to this day, Grace continues to be a an evangelist, really. Powerful intercessor, I'm sure, too. Yeah, exactly. So after that, though, my grief was so intense. Mm. It, you know, losing a baby, there's just no—there's no comparison it, comparing it. They, um, you have the hormones, you're lactating, you're just—it's it, awful— because and, your body is being is basically been prepped and is ready right. to provide for this child, right. and yet the child is not there to provide for. Exactly. Yeah. It, it mm. was very, uh, very difficult for myself mm. and my family, and the grief was intense. And I couldn't get into a therapist to get grief counseling um, because of an insurance issue, um, and so eventually, my husband, my wonderful, beautiful husband, looked at me. And he said, Jennifer, build the university mm. because he knew it got my mind off of the intense grief. And so I did. I started building the university. And um, through some connection, 
I was led to my co-founder who had already started some a, a university on paper. So it was like one conversation and we just we changed the name and the vision of that university to be Catholic Polytechnic University. And Cap CPU was born mm. at that point. So it was literally from because of my trauma and grief with Grace, this university was born. And um, and I think that the Lord gives us these opportunities to turn something tragic and horrible into something life-giving and evangelistic. And the whole point is to become this this pillar of light for others. That's the whole point. We have to be that fire that shows light in the darkness to others. And so when when um when we did when I started moving forward with the university, I would go on podcasts and radio shows and sure enough, the Lord brought me a team of 25 devout Catholic scientists and engineers from across the country. They're so amazing, much more accomplished than I am, but they, um, they're from NASA, MIT, Stanford, ISI, USC, Notre Dame. I mean, these people are amazing. And a lot of them are military and former military. So we've got a brigadier general who's wow. a priest on our board. Nice combo. Yeah. we've got, And he's a PhD too. I mean, amazing man and yet so humble. Um, so lovely. And uh, a now retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. We've got a naval commander. We've got, I mean, just amazing people. And so together we're building Catholic Polytechnic University into the university that we want for our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. We want this for our nation, for our Catholic Church. We want something that does very high-level science and tech research and teaching. Mm. We want um, the freedom to be devoutly Catholic and to teach Catholic values, and to convert others if they feel called by the Lord to be converted. Um, we want—so so the four pillars are academic freedom in that we're not going to cancel someone for, for having pro-life views, you know, that type of thing. Sounds reasonable. Uh, or, or uh, you know, <laughs> pro-religion views. For sure. So uh, we, we want— um, American patriotism. Mm -hmm. We want to show our students how great this country is. Um, we want the best science and technology, and we want the deepest of Catholic faith. So we want our Catholic professors to be practicing mm. and to so that the students will say, hey, oh, there's my AI professor in adoration, and oh, there's my blockchain professor in daily mass. Um we want to show the world how we can overtly rejoin faith and science because there's, you know, one of the lies of the devil the is— false dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Is, is this seeming incongruity of faith and science. But the reality is truths cannot contradict each other. Correct. And so when you have truth, you're pursuing truth in the— in the realm of faith, and you're pursuing truth in the realm of science, they do not contradict. 
And the deeper you get into both truths, the more you realize they actually go quite well together. I love science. I love all things that God invented, you know? So um, there is no incongruency. I want to commend you on two things. Um, First is the extraordinary witness of the story of Grace Mm -hmm. and how she played such a foundational role in giving sort of the impetus and inspiration or maybe just the push Mm -hmm. in this direction. And no question that she's going to continue to intercede for that. I also think that it's like, you know, we, we get, we see some portion of what God is doing with certain things. Mm -hmm. We don't see the whole picture. Mm -hmm. We won't until we get to the other side, but I can guarantee you dollars to donuts here. Okay. That the stories that you've told about her, the people you've interacted with in the process of the pregnancy, et cetera, maybe people who are far from God, far from the faith, you don't know the impact that that had. Those are the kind of things that you hear 20 years later in somebody's conversion story. I remember this one lady, she walked in and she had this, uh, what is it? My uh, trisomy 18, trisomy yeah. 18 pregnancy. And I thought she was crazy. Like, why would anybody want to do this? But there was just something about her that she was dogged in her determination. And it made a difference to me. It's the kind of thing you hear. Yeah. 20, you know, 20 years from now in somebody's conversion story. And those are the things that God uses. It's usually not something grandiose or I read Aquinas and I knew or whatever. (laughs) It's it's, it's these little tiny things. So I have a sense that you probably dropped a thousand of those little tiny things in ways that you don't know. I hope so. I, and I'm convinced that I did because, um, like after the whole experience, I reached out to my doctor at the time and I said, you know, thank you for serving me. Thank you for allowing me to 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 keep grace. And he ended up turning around and thanking me. I bet. And and I was kind of blown away by that. But but to realize that the easy way out was abortion. For sure. And I abs- there was no question in my mind that I would ever take that route. Mm-hmm. I think that they probably don't see that very often. And yet, every time the Lord calls us to step forward and to do the hard thing, there are, there's always—so there, there, Father Stan Fortuna of the um, Franciscans for the Renewal, yeah. his, his big thing was we all got to suffer, and when we suffer, there are always consolations in the midst of it and redemption at the end of it. So, you know, we are redeemed by our suffering. But also, I think that there's a a third component to that in evangelization. I absolutely believe that people are touched every time— 100%. Yeah, and every time you make somebody's eyes bulge out, like, what? You're keeping your baby? Yeah, yeah. Even though it's horribly deformed and incompatible with life, I'm like, of course. Those moments of defying the conventional logic are massive exactly. storytelling and kind of journey-making moments right. for a lot of people right. because it bucks that trend, because it sticks out and stands out. And, 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 you know, in a world with so many things that are so just radically— um, you know, beyond normal, let's say, mm-hmm. to have something that bucks the trend and breaks the normal cycle of of, of that type of dysfunction sticks out, stands exactly. out. And it, and it gives, you know, somebody a moment to latch onto and go, there's something interesting here. Yeah. So no doubt you did that. The second thing I want to commend you for is for your entrepreneurship. 
Because what you described in this whole process of even going for walks with your husband and going, hey, do we do this or do we do this, is identifying a gap in the market. And that's what it's entrepreneurs true. do. Yeah. It's like they find the white space. There's even a name for it, right? It's so like we go after that and then you've got this thing called product market fit and you try to figure out the business model, which you're doing now and all these different things. But it's exceedingly entrepreneurial. I'm not sure how much of that entrepreneurial spirit there is in academia in general. So it's, it strikes me as something fairly novel. I don't know. Am I onto something? <laughs> well, yes. And I mean, either novel or crazy, but... Uh, <laughs> and and I, it might be both. But the thing is, is that... I feel like, and and this is this is where you know the Tepeyac Leadership Institute and their Hour of the Lady Laity comes in. We have to be entrepreneurial as Catholics. We have to because the priests, because their numbers are dwindling so much, they are way over overtaxed. They're they're just beyond overwhelmed between administration and pastoral duties. They're just beyond overwhelmed. So who else is going to do this? It's up to us. We have to do this. If not you, then who? Exactly. Exactly. So then when the Holy Spirit decides to drop an idea in your head, our job is to say, like Mary, yes, here I am, Lord. You know, do with me as you will. Exactly. Do with me as you will. And 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 with that faith, we have to know that he's going to provide everything that we need in order to accomplish this mission. And I'll tell you, it's at times my drop my jaw has just dropped on the floor because literally, and this is discernment, literally everything I have needed has walked up to me yeah. when when I have needed it. Um, just quick story along sure. those lines. I was driving to school to pick up my kids one day, and I was thinking, you know, I'm a neuropsychologist. I don't know much about putting a business plan together. I need someone to help me. And I got to school, and I was walking across campus, and this woman I had never met before walked up to me, and she says, you're Jennifer, right? And I'm like, yeah. She said, my name's Christine. I'm going to put your business plan together. Nice to meet you. Exactly. And again, my jaw dropped on the floor and I said, okay. And she did. And she was wonderful and very, I mean, she had had years of experience putting business plans together for nonprofits. And that's the synchronicity of God. I think it's also a byproduct of putting yourself out there, right? Mm -hmm. And going out there. I'm always amazed by how many of the things that I learned in the secular world have their, whatever's good and true about them is like, obviously comes from God, right? right? And one of those things that I would tell my sales organizations when I was back in the secular media world is good things happen when you're out of the office. I would say that. (laughs) It was something that they could understand because as a salesperson, you know, you could sit behind your desk and, oh, such and such client or prospect hasn't called me back and I have to hit my quota and whatever. Mm -hmm. And I would tell people that are in that rut, just go go get a soft serve yogurt somewhere. (laughs) And inevitably they would bump into someone or when they were out of the office, they would get that call they were waiting for because that's the net effect of what we know as an incarnational faith, which is Mm -hmm. we have to like live it in interaction and relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, when we're out there, when we're connecting with other people Mm -hmm. is when God the, the sort of fabric that he's weaving can kind of manifest itself in a yes. very real way, yes. which is one of the reasons that I, I, I have such a hard time philosophically, and I don't know where you stand on this, but with, with um, you know, uh, let's call it ideologies perhaps or bents 
towards things like the Benedict Option. And I'm not maybe specifically saying that, but the idea of like, let us all just recede into the woods and pray for this corrupt world. Mm -hmm. I can understand the desire to do that. But if we take that all the way to the end, we sort of miss out on any of those moments where that woman could have walked up to you and said, here I am. I'm here to help you do God's mission. Yeah. Well, I do believe that certain people are called to be hermits. Absolutely. My brother's a monk. Yeah. And or cloistered. You know, we have wonderful cloistered Carmelite nuns nearby. And and I reach out to them, God bless them, on a way too often basis, but <laughs> they and that's are part of their vocation. Yeah, for sure. exactly. Yeah. Is to pray for us. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, who and so I guess the question is everyone needs to think and pray and figure out what exactly their vocation is. What are they called being called to do? Because sometimes you don't think that you're being called to do something. And never in a million years would I have ever thought that I would be called to be a university president um, or co-founder, never in a million years. But it, it's a matter of saying yes to the Lord when so God that works. opportunity happens. But I'll tell you, I was given kind of a, a little forecasting of this um, years ago. I think I was about 19 years old, and I was at uh, the Religious Education Congress in Los Angeles, um, was it in Anaheim at the it time? Was, it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was, atta- we, we really just used to go to see uh, Benedict Rochelle speak. And so at the end of it, there was this Q&A and I got up and I said, Father Groeschel, there's, um, I haven't been very pleased about some of the direction that mm. some of the Catholic universities are going. And Benedict Groeschel looked at me with piercing eyes mm. And he said, Jennifer, you do something about it. And my jaw dropped on the floor. I was kind of speechless like, Wait a minute. at the was, time. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, right. I'm going to do something about it. But then, Well, that's you know, true. And it's true in all kinds yeah. of areas, certainly in ministerial areas. I mean, that's sort of a go-to line for clergy um, when people bring It's like, you know, Father, or in my case, Deacon, we should really— we should really have X because we don't have that. Right. Like, well, you how do about something. you? <laughs> yeah. How about this might be your calling to set that thing up? So exactly. yeah, and that's how that's how God works. It's true. And the more preposterous it seems now, probably the more in line with what His plan is. Right. It's like I could never imagine. I mean, think of Abraham. Think of Moses. Mm-hmm. Think of all these. Uh, you know, Jonah. I mean, the people who are like, right. yeah, I could never imagine. It's like, that's perfect. That's like boilerplate God type thing. <laughs> it's you know? true. It's true. And also, I think, um, who does He call? He calls normal people. He calls little people. He the calls flawed, of, imperfect, and broken. Yeah, yep. Saint Joan of Arc. You know, mm-hmm. she's a, she's practically a child. Um, but and and I think of even myself. I've I've got these crippled hands. Well, okay, of course. He calls a woman, a former homeschooling mom with crippled hands, to start a university because I can't point to myself. I can only point to him as the one who creates it. And you're referring there to your audio, autoimmune arthritis yeah, issue, yeah. just since we're doing this in an audio format, just wanted to make that context for the audience. Yeah. How, how has that, in a way, been a blessing to you, or how have you found yourself reflecting on that relative to this mission that you're talking about? Well, it's, um, I mean, it, it just, it makes me kind of chuckle just because I think, oh, of course, the you know, the Lord picks this this little person and it, I'm not at all trying to point myself to myself as, you know, 
anyone special. I'm just saying I just said yes. Um, of course, I'll be, build a university for you if you want it because I know you're going to provide everything for it. And mm -hmm. it's not going to be my work. It's going to be yours. But, um, but yeah, so I had a, a very crippling autoimmune arthritis from, gosh, I was a teenager when I first felt the pain. Um, and my, my hands are horribly crippled from it. But the, the big thing is uh, I ended up getting a test, a very sensitive test for food allergies mm. um, from a very sensitive testing facility. I, I think it's foodallergy.com. Um, and I ended up finding out exactly what my body was allergic to, and I cut out all the foods my body was allergic to, and it stopped attacking itself. So I, like, I found out it was allergic to eggs and chicken and green beans. I had no idea I was eating eggs every day. I'm allergic to everything, too. Oh, my it's gosh. Crazy. It's awful. I've got the dermographia, too, which is like Ooh. you can – if I took my shirt off and you took like a, just your finger and wrote your name on my back, it would just <gasps> – it would flare up and you'd see your signature. It doesn't bother me. Oh it doesn't even itch. But wow. um, I remember going to a dermatologist once and he found out I had that. He brought in his colleagues like, check this out. They were looking, <laughs> they were having fun drawing, drawing on my back oh, no. to see how it flare up. And I thought it was kind of interesting. So yeah, I know I know a thing or two about allergies. Yeah. 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 So it's, uh, but once I cut that out, my arthritis completely went away um, as long as I, you know, steered clear of those items. And um, so I've been arthritis-free for like 12, 13 years now. Um, I, don't, I don't even take an, um, an ibuprofen. My blood tests are fantastic. It can be seriously debilitating. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're painful and just, you know, we take for granted how much we use our hands, our feet, et cetera. Right. And so, yeah, no, I, I, don't have, I don't have it, but I, I can certainly uh, God. understand and relate to it. You know, the other thing that I wanted to, that you brought up a little bit earlier, but I think is a really sort of central part of this that you're kind of tackling um, with the Polytechnic Institute is this sort of false dichotomy, right? Of, mm -hmm. of faith and science. Uh, yeah. Faith and science, right? Where if uh, I feel so much of it, first of all, it's a little bit of a throwaway thing because I feel most of the time when people say that it, it, it's almost a dead giveaway that they're not very informed on much. Mm -hmm. right, right. Right. Like it's, yeah. it's almost like you're raising your hand saying, I know very little come, mm -hmm. come to me. Right. Yeah. Um, because people who are somewhat learned, even people who don't share our faith walk know mm -hmm. that some of the greatest scientific advancements, oh, the yeah. university system, I mean, everything like the church basically gave us, or at the very least promoted or endowed or did some other thing too. Mm -hmm. So it's ridiculous sort of on its face but in today's world, we're very much sort of locked into this idea that, you know, you're either a kind of science or faith person. Mm -hmm. This approach with what you're trying to do really blows that whole dichotomy up, it yeah. kind of blows it to bits. Because Absolutely. even Catholic universities that might have STEM programs, let's be honest, they're, they're, there's a lot of kind of lukewarm-y, sort of Catholic, not really, you know, Catholic universities that do that. But if you're a student there, you might not even know they're Catholic. Right. You know, a lot of Catholic universities have less than 50% of the student body who's Catholic. And mm -hmm. of those, a very small majority, minority rather, that actually practice their faith. So mm -hmm. so you're really being very intentional about this. Absolutely. And kind of attacking that dichotomy. Yeah, it, absolutely. Matter of fact, um, if you look at the Pew Research Center, they say that that's actually the number one reason that people give for leaving the faith was they see a, a division between faith and science. And that's so sad. Um, but I know it's true. I mean, that 
I had a, a girl reach out to me who was a graduate, recent graduate of MIT, and she said she was the only practicing Catholic out of her entire graduating class of engineers. And and Caltech has nine practicing undergrads. Uh, I, now that was an estimate, but um, but that came from the local, you know, Newman Guide or Newman Center. Center, yeah. Um, so I feel like this is this is. A situation where the harvest is ripe. It is ripe for the picking. We need to be able to go in because into to science and tech companies going into for sure. um, any type of science and tech field and to say, hey, are you, you know, not feeling right with the world? Are you depressed? Are you, you know, the, the people who don't find God tend to have difficulties in their lives. And so how can we be that beacon of light to show them there is joy? You've got to be that pillar of fire and to show that on your face, show them the love of God, show them the passion. I mean, I have this burning feeling in my heart when I pray, and that burning feeling is this intense love of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus and of God and the, the, our, our beloved saints, we have this ability and an opportunity to reach out into this continent eight, this eighth continent of, of tech people who are lost. They, they're lost, and we need to be able to show them, wait a minute, science and faith do really go together. It's and in like, many cases, they don't even know they're lost. Exactly. Right? It's they like just, they don't even know that that's an, it's an option, that exactly. that even exists. They don't know what they're missing. That's exactly right. Yeah. I also think that, you know, all of the things you mentioned, sort of this this passion, this sort of zeal for all of these, the, the, the great gifts of our faith that we can feel at a visceral, emotional level. For a lot of left-brain people, I think also the benefit of having a faith experience is the coherence of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the just how amazingly airtight logical it makes the universe it, be. Yes, yes. Which is the part that maybe they might find exciting. Yeah, I know. Brother Guy Consolmagno, the Vatican astronomer, he said once, "The more you learn of the created, the more you learn of our Creator," and that's so true. It's so well put, and it's so simple. You know, it's it, super simple. It's like such a great, um, you know, proof for the existence of God is. Mm-hmm. Everything is created, right. has a creator. I mean, it's just so logical. It makes so much sense. Right. But again, we can be in these very closed and little bubbles, a lot of the times insulated by technology, that sometimes keep us from sort of looking just above the water level to see what the bigger picture is. And mm-hmm. I think that what you're doing with the school can be a big part of it. The thing I'm excited about, too, and reading a little bit about the school is that you're also looking to get um, involved in the business side of things too, right? Yeah. With business, um, you know, information systems and marketing tech and entrepreneurship. And mm-hmm. look, I heard this recently at a summit that I spoke at that, you know, the future saints of of the church in the U.S. are going to be CEOs and entrepreneurs. And I was like, <laughs> well, why not? I mean, think about the people it's that true. are in the most influential areas of, mm-hmm. of, of, in 2023, to be influential in culture, you can be a sports figure, you can be a music performer, or you could be like a really amazing entrepreneur. You know, think of like, think of whether you like them or not, agree with them or not. Think of like Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and all yeah. these guys and the influence that they have in the world. Imagine what those guys could do if, if, they, if they took that. So, but 
there is no sort of entrepreneurial uh, proving ground for people that from a faith standpoint. So I think, right, and again, it's that white space. It's that that area that that hasn't really been touched on. I mean, I think uh, Catholic University of America, um, they're doing a, a great job with that, with the Bush Business School. Um, but there's few. It's and, and few. This is yeah. another thing that I would say, and I'd love you free to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I find in the Catholic world that there is an almost immediate allergic reaction if somebody says, I do X, and there's another Catholic person doing X or vaguely similar to X. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, there should only be one. That is completely non-existent in the secular world. Yeah. In the secular world, it's like, wait, we've got Nike, we've got Adidas, we've got Reebok, (laughs) we've got, and all of them take a piece of the market and they bring a particular value, even though on paper they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But in the Catholic world, it's like, oh, we could just get one pro-life group and get them all rolled up. And I almost feel like that's donors talking, like they don't want to get calls from a number of people. So they'd rather just have to give one check, but it's not, that's not how you scale anything. Right. It's true. Um, and there actually, there is um, a project I'm working on with the university, and that is it, you, you mentioned this um, integration of the business world. Um, in my ideal world, what I would really like is to have a very low cost or free undergrad. And and people say, "What? What are you talking about?" Well, here's the way it would work, and um, you know, we'll we'll see how this plays out. But in my ideal world, if we charge very little or even, God forbid, nothing for our undergrad degrees, we could get 500 degrees, or, I'm sorry, 500 applicants for our first semester opening up. And we pick the top 50 to 100. So we have the top students. Those top students will get hands-on experience if we have corporate partners. So our corporate partners donate to the university. In exchange, they get um, a say in our curriculum. So if they need a particular skill, we can, we can modify our curriculum to fit that skill. They get access to top students. They get— It's a pipeline. It is. Them. It's a pipeline for internships, and then they get first dibs on the students for offering them jobs. Um, and possible tax benefits. I'm unclear about that, but it's a possibility. Then the students get free a free degree or low, very low-cost degree, and they get hands-on learning in the corporate sp- sponsors. And the university gets financial sustainability in the long run because we're not reliant on philanthropy and student tuition. And we also get the opportunity to operate without government dollars. Therefore, we can maintain our Catholic identity down to the core, down to the detail. It's, it's particularly so, important in the state you're choosing to do this in. It is. And that's that's one of the reasons that, that I kind of devised this plan, because I am very concerned about um, government dollars coming in. Therefore, we need to abide by certain regulations that don't, that, that would con flicked possibly with our faith. So um, so anyway, that's that's one of the plans that we have, and we're really looking for corporate sponsors at this point to participate in this partnership. Um, and uh, it, but but also that allows us to really help the students learn the the 
the inner workings of businesses mm. and, and corporations and to be innovative and to benefit these corporations with innovative thought um, because we will be picking the top students in order to, to participate in this opportunity. Back to the so. entrepreneurial point, that's a, it's a very entrepreneurial way to look at a business model, what you just described too, um, which is kind of multiple revenue streams, uh, a lot of partnership emphasis. That's something that you see a lot in the kind of secular world um, and particularly in the startup world is you look at who is out there that can help do something and, um, and accelerate your own mission by virtue of synergizing with them. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of having corporate sponsors is really smart. And I can imagine people wanting to get involved in that for a variety of the reasons, the benefits you just mentioned, and maybe others. Um, and it's also a way to make the value to the end consumer, in this case, the student, much more attractive, especially if I'm taking a flyer on a school I've never heard of, you know, to exactly. kind of start things out. So yeah. I think that's really smart. Yeah, we will always need philanthropy, but... Um, but to be reliant on philanthropy and student tuition, I think there's a real benefit to starting something from scratch because you can look at what other people have done successfully. I mean, Catholics have done liberal arts institutions so beautifully for so many hundreds of years. We are so blessed to have this rich liberal arts tradition. But I just think now now in this time, it, it's time to allow a university to be out there that is overtly joining faith and science, but also truly polytechnic in nature, because I think that's where the sparks fly. Um, so when you combine, say, um, biology with tech, or you combine, um, you know, physics with tech, or physics and chemistry, or, you know... Or tech and business. Or tech and business, then, or, or biology and business. You, you have so many opportunities to really create sparks of innovation and sparks that are going to um, enhance the abilities uh, of of our world and to improve the world. Mm. Granted, we also are looking at developing an ethics program because right now there's business ethics and there's bioethics, and those are pretty well established. So one of the things we want to do also is develop a, a foundation for tech ethics mm. because what we sorely really, needed. We really need to have an ethical influence on the direction that science and tech is going. When you know, there's the saying that when you create a ship, you also create a shipwreck. Um, and those are wise words for those in the tech world. Think about what that shipwreck looks like in the subject of uh, artificial intelligence. Exactly. The potential size of that shipwreck that we're that we're facing. Exactly. Just a few weeks ago, I forget who the who the, who I was talking to. It was on the show, but um. One of our wait what questions was a true or false question around a document that the Vatican had recently released around guidelines for artificial intelligence. Mm. The Vatican actually partnered right. with Microsoft and Intel to actually develop this wow. infrastructure statement on AI guidelines. And I was like, and I asked it as a true or false question because it sounds like, wait a minute, the Vatican? And it ended up to be true. It was wow. true that it happened. That's great. Um, but, you know, that idea of ethics in very fast-moving technological areas, artificial intelligence is one, where by the time we figured out that this is happening, it's almost too late, right? That's yeah. how fast this thing is moving. Right, exactly. I mean, it's like we're ne waiting for a—, a, a, a um, legislative process to address this, forget about it. I mean, Congress is just dealing with social media now, and that's 15 years old. Right. <laughs> AI, if we wait for them, we're going to be 
toast, right? So building these ethics frameworks is really important. Really important. And just because you have the ability to graft human hair to mice doesn't necessarily mean that you should that be you grafting should. human hair to mice. Yeah. Yes, exactly. As a, as so. a, as a president of a, uh, of a nascent university system, I'm curious of what you make of AI from a kind of education standpoint. Do you think it can be a tool for students that they can use it well? Do you think you would say— don't touch it? Like, oh, would you have gosh. rules against it? Like, what's your thinking now? Yeah. Well, the thing is, I come to it from a neuroscientist point of view. Mm. That's the big thing is that all of these crush, all of these crutches that mm. we develop don't necessarily help our brains. And so these, the AI is really a crutch. Oh, I can do it. I can use AI to help me write this, you know, 20 page term paper. But then they don't learn how to do it themselves. And and so years ago, I used to own a stroke and brain injury rehab center. And it was based on a therapy that was novel that was called constraint-induced movement therapy. Mm. It was developed out of the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And it was phenomenal technique because really what we came down to understanding is the brain is plastic. The brain has the ability to recover when years and years and years of thought used to say, okay, you have a stroke or brain injury. The most you can recover is within the first six months. After that, forget it. You know, get used to it. Um, we know different now. And it was kind of amazing because when I owned the, st- the Stroke and Brain Injury Rehab Center and we c- we employed these constraint-induced m- movement therapies, we would see people recover again, you know, 10, 10 years post-stroke. Um, they would recover movement. And it, it was a very simple concept. It's like we would put a constraining mitt on the unaffected side. So they'd have a curled up hand, say, from a stroke or brain injury. And um, we'd actually put uh, like an oven mitt on the, the, good hand. Uh, the good hand. And they would have to through intense practice, so like six hours of therapy a day, five days a week for three weeks, we would put them through um, therapy and they would recover. So it it involves two elements, intensity of work and constraint of compensation techniques. So if you don't push the brain, it's not going to recover. It's not going to learn and that's what AI is. AI is going to be in the educational system as a crutch. And we are not going to be pushing our brains to the extent that we need to. That makes so much sense to me. I think about resistance training, even from a fitness standpoint, mm-hmm. the way to make your muscles grow or become more toned is through having them struggle mm-hmm. and resist something, gravity mostly, right. you know, when you're lifting something heavy. And the net, the net effect of that is uh, increased performance, increased capacity, whatever exactly. it is that you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, even at the sort of cellular level, what it was explained to me a very long time ago in a very visual way that I never forgot was that, you know, muscle fibers, when you work out, essentially break. They, they, they snap. Mm-hmm. And in the healing process, they sort of heal one on top of the other, which is what creates more mass. So if you want to build muscle, that's what is physically happening. You're literally breaking your muscle and it's re it's rehealing right. in a kind of a superstructure that makes makes you a little bit you know bigger yeah. 
And so similar concept, which I could totally see with the brain. Yeah, the brain is exactly the same way. Um, So there was was a study of nuns. I love this study done several years ago. And they studied nuns and they gave the nuns psychological tests in— in, to determine their capabilities, but also their decline as they age. And then the nuns would pass away and the postmortem brains would be examined. So they found that nuns that exhibited um, postmortem plaques and tangles, which are the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, if they had actually learned new things while they were alive— those plaques and tangles would persist to, in the brain, but the psychological testing didn't show decline. Mm. If they didn't learn new things, then the plaques and tangles would would manifest as Alzheimer's disease on on the psychological testing. So the moral of the story is: learn piano, learn a yeah. new language, learn something to create new connections in the brain, so that. When you're looking for your keys we or your car um, in a parking lot, we can recruit those new, newly made connections in order to, um, you know, find find what you're looking for. You're not putting your keys in the fridge. For sure. Um, Back to the coherence of the faith, too. Um, everything you're describing from a supernatural level is also evidence of the importance of remaining in the present, right? Because— God is in the now. Mm-hmm. And I think about this in the context of like assisted living facilities. A lot of them are kind of branded as sort of memory preservation centers, right? And like, don't lose your memories and we'll, you know, we, and, and they'd have all these tools and tactics. But if, if older people in particular, I, 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 I'm always giving my mom a hard time about this because she's always nostalgic and talking about, do you remember when you were four and you did whatever? And I love that stuff. But there's a moment where I'm like, mom, what'd you do today? Like <laughs> what's going on today that's new? It, it, it kind of harkens us back to the moment and the importance of making experiences today because we're not living in the past, or at least we shouldn't be. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. Um, just before we get to uh, Wait What, which I know you're breathlessly waiting for, <laughs> the Wait What <laughs> segment, um, I wanted you to just share with folks how they can kind of keep tabs of what you're up to, right? Like the the, the sort of the best ways to track your progress and mm-hmm. maybe get involved, maybe yeah. respond in the way that you said, hey, you know, I have this great idea, but I don't see it being done. Well, maybe they could partner with you to get some of these things out right. in the world. And I should probably explain where we are in the process. Yeah, because please. People are going to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are in the process of licensing to be a university in the state of California. Um, we applied in December of 2021 um, and we submitted 70 syllabi. All the policies are in place. The professors are hired. We have a campus on uh, a facilities use agreement in place with a campus nearby, um, Bosco Tech in mm-hmm. Rosemead. And so everything is ready to go. We are just waiting for the licensing process in the state of California. So we've been through phase one of two um, last September they got to our application. We went back and forth with them. Um, and then uh, we're just standing in line waiting for phase two. So in the meantime, um, 
I was offered a position as the executive director, the interim executive director of the Right to Life League in Southern California. So I have taken that um, while we are waiting. Um, but I like how your job that you take while you're waiting is like another <laughs> CEO thing. That's just great. Most people would be like, I'm going to do a little bit of like freelance work. You know, you're like, I'm going to be a CEO of some other thing for a little bit. Well, they needed someone. And, and again, it's this saying yes to the Lord. That's that's what it's all about. Never done this before. You know, it's a, a steep learning curve for me, but um, but I'm excited about it because I think that we can make big um, big leaps forward it, in Southern California. Southern California, we have this this whole push um, for abortion, and so um, our battle is is really it's the front lines. It's the front lines where we service over 70 maternity homes, clinics, and centers. And so, um, you know, we're, we're trying to service those who service the front lines. Mm. Um, but um, anyway, it, um, two different topics. But, but stepping back to the university, your original question is how can people get involved? The, the big thing is for people to go to our website, www.catholicpolytechnic.org and fill out our survey. It takes three minutes, but that way you get on our mailing list. We don't bombard you with emails. Probably, I mean, very few go out um, until we we really get up and running. But um, as soon as we have the final stamp of approval from the state of California to be a university— we are poised and ready to go. And I have people from across the country who are ready to broadcast this to the world. Um, so I'm confident that that we're um, that this will this will happen. We just we need licensing and we need donations really is is what what it all comes down to. We have everything else ready. I think so. it's also, I mean, th- this is just one man's opinion, but I also think it's particularly, meaningful that you're doing this school in California. And so mm-hmm. I would encourage you to battle mightily the temptation because the bureaucrats might make it slow for you here to not just do this and I don't know, wherever might make it easier, but to stick it out yeah. and, oh, and, yeah. and found this thing here because mm-hmm. I think it can be this, this great sort of shining light and hopefully become an epicenter of this kind of thinking. And that's how cultural change happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it happens slowly, but it usually happens around a hub of some kind. Exactly. And, yes. And and that's yes. where I think this has the potential of being. Yeah. And when when I pray about it, I I get this image of this um, big campus, kind of on a hill, being this beacon of light yeah. to the world. And 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 really, we can do that by intense faith and intense science, but also intense love. Mm. There has to be that component. Because the best way – some people are brought in through cognitive logic. You know, some people are brought to the faith that way. And and I hope that that is going to be definitely a component. But others are brought that way to love and service, through love and service. Um, and I think that the more we step out in that love and service, people do a double take. They're like, wait – Wait, they are, this is the wait what? This is, wait, you mean you're 
a scientist and you're an engineer and you're, and you're a devout really Catholic. really good scientist and a really good engineer, like the best in the world, yeah. like the best in class. Exactly. And, and you're, you're devout. And, but, mm-hmm. and then you practice it by being kind and loving and doing corporal acts of mercy Amen. and having an intense prayer life. Like, like I, um, I came to a realization maybe about a year or two ago that I realized that some of my prayer the was very verbal and I'm not as much a verbal person. And so I realized that I have to do it my way in what, what way I create that relationship with Christ. And so when I sit down to pray, in my mind's eye, I go up to Christ, I hold his face, mm. and I kiss his forehead, mm. and then I hold his hand, and I kiss his hand, and I even wipe the blood of his hands on my cheeks and kiss his feet, and I hug the Holy Spirit in whatever image I, mm-hmm. this nebulous image, and I go up to the the heavenly father and worship him and say gloria in excelsis deo and um kiss his toes you know it's it, it and give mary a hug and saint saint anthony the high five saint yeah five, well i think in their in their days they would have been kissed on both cheeks For sure. probably yeah so they still do that in europe yeah so i would kiss them on both cheeks and and it's this intensity of a relationship with these heavenly people. It's like having— That's beautiful. It's almost like having a heaven, heavenly board of, of directors <laughs> that, have you that ever come guide across, you. Have you ever come across a book called The Way of a Pilgrim? No, I have not. Highly recommend it too. So I, I, uh, I read it on retreat recently at the Carmelites. I did my retreat with the Carmelite nice. sisters out in Alhambra. For anybody in California or outside of California, it's a great place to make a retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came across this book. My wife was with me. It was a couple's retreat. And I asked her to pick from their big library, like, just pick me a book. Let the Holy Spirit pick it. And so she went and brought me this little volume. And it's it's anonymously written. And I love anonymous books, right? The other one that figured very prominently in my background is um, The Cloud of Unknowing, which is another great book mm-hmm. that was anonymously written, I think, in the 5th or 6th century. This one was written in the 1800s by a Russian uh, kind of itinerant, like a mendicant guy, wasn't even clergy, just a man who decided to walk Russia with nothing (laughs) and subsist off of the generosity of strangers. And he was um, sent on this journey because he went to a divine liturgy, right? That's the Eastern version of the mass, right? The divine liturgy. And they were preaching on the, on the scripture that says you should pray constantly or pray always. Mm. And he was a very left brain person and could not comprehend what that means. What does it mean to pray always? And he would go and listen to sermons and he would ask priests and he got these very unsatisfactory answers until he um, got introduced to the Jesus prayer, right? Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. And the way that the Eastern fathers would talk about this was in a very kind of um, almost as a mantra to use that word, even though it's not technically a mantra and to repeat it constantly. And, and it, it, he walks through this sort of learning of the Jesus prayer, even though it's one sentence, but the learning of it took him like 10 years mm-hmm. to learn it at first by rote repetition. Like his spiritual father would say, I want you to pray this prayer 3000 times today. Oh and then he would come back the next day and he goes, okay, great. 6,000. Oh. And then 12,000, literally, to where he describes that the beads, because they use these beads, 
his thumb and forefinger were raw from the beads. And then, you know, over time, he comes to the great awareness that the lesson is, he describes it very beautifully. And it's very simply written because written by a guy with no education. He was like, you know, some peasant guy. But he describes it that his heartbeat began to be the prayer. He had literally incorporated this Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me. His heart was beating it everywhere it went. It wasn't even conscious. And he really became that prayer. And it was this moment of really rich transcendence. And you reminded me of it with your description of this um, kind of visualization that you have. And it is true. Look, we have a lot of beautiful devotional practices and ways to pray in in this treasure trove that we have in in the faith, rosary, novenas, liturgies of all kinds, et cetera. And they're beautiful and we should keep them. Right. And I still do that. And of course you should still do them, but we're each uniquely made, right? Great idea of God, uniquely made. And we have a particular voice in relation to our creator that is unique. And so discovering what that is in the, how we pray and how we deepen our prayer life is like critical. I mean, it's, and it's a discovery process. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn 50 this year and I'm still figuring things out. Like every week I'm like, Oh wow. I had no idea. I've been doing this wrong for 20 years. So it's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And for people to continue to challenge themselves in discernment um, and through spiritual direction to really seek that proximity with the Trinity mm-hmm. in a way that is obviously faithful but unique to them. Because there is. There's a unique way right. we can each approach, it's true. approach the throne. I know. Someone asked me, well, um, do you pray always? And, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, it's they, the philosophers would say, I think, therefore I am. My version is, I pray, therefore I am. Yeah. It's it, a little twist on Cartesian dualism yeah, exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. I just, uh, I feel like I cannot proceed on my own power. I cannot build a university. I cannot be an executive director of the Right to Life League. I cannot serve my my elderly mother who's on hospice. I cannot serve my family. I cannot do anything without the Lord guiding every single step, every word, every, every breath, deed, every, every everything. Everything hinges on him. And and when you especially when you step out and do something big for him, like build a university, like be, you know, I'm sure you have listeners who are heads of companies. You you can't step out without being without being absolutely in tuned with him and and therefore you can hear his call that's the big thing can you hear where he's calling you next because remember the lord has all this planned out and so we shouldn't fret over any of it basically it's it's all going according to plan um and that's and again that's why when someone approached me and say hey could you step in and be even an interim executive director of the Right to Life League, I'm like, oh, of course. Well, of I'm sure course. there's a partnership for the Right to Life League and your your university in time. I'm sure Absolutely. there'll be something that'll develop Absolutely. out of that. Too. I mean, we're the Catholic Polytechnic University is is going to be doing pro life research and teaching. There's no question there, and and the Right to Life League is an amazing, amazing organization, um, really doing a lot of legal help to the clinics and HR help and and legislative advocacy in the state of California. I mean, who's doing that? God bless Susan Swift, who's going up to the Sacramento and and 
um, advocating against certain bills that are absolutely opposed to our way of life and our, our religion and our beliefs um, and a, against the pro-life stance. So, um, you know, it's a fantastic organization. And yes, I, I really hope to, to be, um, to have a constant, wonderful partnership. I do think that that Catholics tend to be siloed, as you kind of said it earlier, that um, that siloing doesn't really benefit anybody, and we really need to be able to reach out and and do amazing work together. But the, but that's exactly the solution, right? So what I'm suggesting is there's there the the silos do exist. Mm-hmm. The solution isn't let's just have one thing instead for every in every flavor. The the solution is finding, having a synergy and partnership orientation, right. which naturally exists in the secular world. Mm-hmm. Naturally. naturally yeah. I mean, in fact, the secular world has Im- even developed new terminology for it, frenemy, coopetition. Okay. Oh, so, so the, the, because of that dynamic where we're in the same business or in related businesses, but we can work together to accelerate right. both of our missions. Right. That's a definition of Planned synergy. Planned Parenthood does it. Of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. So if, you know, if they're, if they have all of these relationships, we need to develop those relationships as well. Um, yeah. Amen. But yeah. we'll include uh, the information on Right to Life and obviously on, on the university and everything else in our show notes. Thank you. So people can can access that and follow up on that and get That'd in touch great. with you and, Thank you and follow the journey and all of mm-hmm. that. And what a great privilege to have you on the show, especially in person. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad we finally made this a reality. Yeah, thank you. We had you. some scheduling things. Could I tell you one fun story? Tell me. Okay, so this uh, this is my Saint Anthony miracle. Okay. And, um, years ago, eleven years ago, I was uh, homeschooling and pregnant with my last child, last living child, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, we were involved in a secular school uh, on the kind of on the side outside of our Catholic network. And so we were going on a homeschool field trip whale watching. And we were out in the San Pedro Harbor. And after about 45 minutes, I hadn't, we hadn't seen anything. And so I remembered St. Anthony's miracle of the fish. And I thought, okay, St. Anthony, could you just show us something? And we find a whale. And yeah, I'm thinking a whale would be great. Within minutes we had one to two thousand dolphins swim with our ship wow and if you could imagine can you imagine in your head just what two thousand dolphins looks like i've seen like maybe a couple dozen next to my ship it but not was 2, crazy it, it, it the head it's beautiful the um the captain of the ship said in his 30 years he had never seen anything like it people were filming it they were um and and somebody got it onto MSNBC. It was picked up by MSNBC, and they said their scientists were baffled. Um, they, and I was looking around saying, oh, my gosh, I just prayed to St. Anthony, and he just <laughs> delivered 2,000 dolphins. And I can't really tell anyone except my own kids because they're all seculars here. Right. But um, – uh, I did. I mean, I did share it with with a bunch of people, and and it got posted to Facebook. And I did, you know, so it was an opportunity to share it with a bunch of people. Um, but the the point of it is, is that sometimes we pray and we ask for something in particular, and we don't get that. But if we were to pray and ask for quote something, 
then we're leaving it open for an unbelievable unbelievable miracle beyond our expectations, beyond our comprehension. Lord, let me help you in some way. Build a university. <laughs> right, exactly. Rather than help me get a promotion in my marketing job. It's exactly. like that might not be what he's exactly. It's a great insight. So, it's a so great insight. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's it's nice to think about that in terms of prayer and pray for the Lord's will and the Lord's plan and pray Amen. for and be expectant of miracles. That's a big thing. The miracles. Expect miracles and they will show. They will. I mean, all of it. They're all around us. Yeah, me and St. Anthony are very tight. So uh, nice. I'm happy to hear that he delivered for you. He <laughs> delivers for me all the time. That's great. Awesome. Jennifer, are you ready then to play? Wait, what? <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready, but the Lord will help me. <laughs> all right. So we're going to start off nice and easy, okay, um, with a true or false question. Okay. So you got a 50-50 shot. Now, I did a lot of research on you, okay? So without Uh-oh. going into too great of detail, I know that you and I both share an affinity for dipping sauces, for sauces, okay? <laughs> yes. So, all right. So true or false? The ancient Romans were known for their fondness for sauces too, including dipping sauces. The Roman gourmet Marcus Gavius Apicusa, hopefully I'm getting that right, who lived sometime in the, in the first century during the reign of Tiberius, so I guess he was a contemporary of Jesus himself, compiled a collection of recipes called On the Subject of Cooking. I won't even attempt the Latin uh, translation which included numerous sauce recipes. These sauces were employed in a number of ways, Jennifer, including as a condiment for the exotic Roman poultry of pink flamingo. Oh, goodness. Is that (laughs) whole thing true or is it false? I would assume it's got to be true. It is true, 100% true. But the reason I think that is also because Sauces are what make food interesting. So true. So true. Yeah, it's yeah. it's true. Um, I'm just blown away that there was a cookbook in uh, the reign of Tiberius and that they were showing all these inventive ways to pour sauces on things, including the poor pink flamingos, which I have no idea what they taste like and probably never will. All right. Great job. Question number two. Jennifer, you're obviously, as we've been discussing throughout the show, very well acquainted with the university system. And no doubt you have a deep understanding of the role that the church played in founding the university system, etc. But, this is a fill-in-the-blank question, but what you may not know is that in the year 1231, just years after the founding of the first European universities, Pope Gregory IX issued a papal bull, it was called Parens Scientarium, granting the University of Blank the right to self-government whereby it could make its own rules pertaining to courses and studies. And with that document, the university came of age as a fully formed intellectual corporation for the advancement and training of scholars. So we're looking for which university this was, the University of Blank in the year 1231 that was liberated by Pope Gregory IX and all universities that followed as a result. There weren't that many universities in Europe, or right. anywhere, frankly, right. at that time. Right. I'm guessing it might be a pontifical university, but I have no idea, really. But 1231 is the year St. Francis died. And, oh. Uh, I'm sorry, St. Anthony. St. Anthony, Anthony died. So, a contemporary of St. Francis, yeah. good buddy of his. Exactly. I, I'll give so. you a hint. Um, let's see. I can't make this one too obvious. Are you a—you're um, not, you're not a soccer fan, are you? 
No. Not really. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's say. Striking there's, out here. There's a famous detective that worked with a cartoon panther who would have been from this city. Do you know of any famous cartoon panthers? Of course. Pink Panther. Okay. Yeah. So there was a there was a series of movies that were made, and he was, I don't know if you ever saw them, but he partnered, the Pink Panther partnered with this detective who was from this town that we're looking for in Europe. Okay, that's not a very good clue. Let's see. <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> Creme brulee. <laughs> In Paris. Paris. <laughs> yes. That's right. That is correct. That is the correct answer. The University of Paris. And apparently this uh, papal bull really, uh, prior to this, I guess, diocese and other authorities were very involved in the creation of curricula and everything mm-hmm. else. And they made it impossible for scholars to do their work, teachers to do their work. Oh, no. And so this document basically liberated them to build their own kind of stuff. So there you go. Very nice. All right. I'll give you half point for that. Actually, probably better than that. Point, point seven five. <laughs> since you think, did come up with the answer. I would think more like a quarter of a point. All right, quarter of a point. All right, final question. Question number three. Now, as a former homeschool mom, I think your take on this here is key, and you're guaranteed to get this one right because it's just a basically, you know, it's your answer, and your answer is going to be correct. If you could pick the childhood version of any Catholic figure from any time in history to have been besties with your kids— Bible camp, play dates, field trips. Who would it have been? And before you answer, remember that you'd likely need to be on very close terms with this person's parents. Right. Right. Exactly. Hmm. That's a tough one. Any Catholic personage who would have been kid version of them with your kids and their besties. Um, I'm thinking St. Joan of Arc. Nice. Because uh, she could play swords with my boys, and she can pal around with my girls. And uh, um, I love the fact that she had visions as a child of St. Saint, um, Saint Michael the Archangel, mm-hmm. among others. Mm-hmm. So uh, that would have made a whole group of kids they could have played awesome. with. Awesome. <laughs> Of course, it comes with some downsides that they're palling around with great military strategists, you know, exactly. or like tactician. They're but, getting- you know, actually, I think, I personally think that when you are in in a, um, a battle, it's good to read what other people in battle have done and how they have succeeded. There's a great marketing book um, done in the 1980s by Rees and Trout called um, Marketing Warfare. Mm. And... It is a very great explanation on um, battle strategy, combining battle strategy with business marketing techniques. Very cool. And yeah. how to rise up your business through these techniques. So again, it, I think it's this this idea that if you don't read history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, we, anyone out there who is a um, CEO or director or anything really we need we have the obligation to be able to 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 read the materials that will guide us in our path but also to recognize that certain battles are like warfare it, it, it it's like you know Al Capone wasn't taken down by um, with his murder charges which they were trying to do for years but through tax evasion, tax evasion. that was a, a typical flanking move that um, worked really well. Could we do that type of thing in in our own, you know, spiritual warfare? That I think we need to 
think of it outside the box a bit along those lines. Strategery. And, yes. And, and be creative. Be Absolutely. Creative. Absolutely. No question about it. So you'd be, she, your kids would be hanging with uh, little Joni. Yes. Little Joni. I'm sure she was a treat as a kid. Well, Jennifer, what a great privilege to have you on the show. Thank you again for being with us, for sharing all these great uh, thoughts and insights and experiences. And look, our, um, our prayers for the continued prosperity as you say yes to God with all of these different things that you're involved with. Thank you, and, Deacon Charlie. Uh, yeah. By extension, all the prayers of the folks listening to this show. Let's add them to the list yes. so that we can make this thing really good. Amen. Amen. And if you're listening to Our Voices, friends, that means it's time to subscribe to follow this show to go to deacontcharlie.com and hit the podcast link and support this show because it takes time and energy and resources to bring you the very best uh, on a weekly basis. And so we're trying to do that. And we'll count on your prayers in the meantime, and we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.